0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, 2 Kings chapter 12. We're going to study Second Kings 12 this week, which continues the story of Joash, the latest king of Judah, who was publicly coronated at the tender age of only seven years old. Now, our previous lesson in chapter 11 told us why it was that this extraordinary action took place, as well as how it took place, and the why was because Joash the sole survivor of the ruling class of the house was that was was the sole survivor of the uh, house of David and this child was all that stood between continuation or extinction of the davidic dynasty and chapter 11 explained this complex web of of intrigue and murder that had become standard operating procedure within Judah's and Israel's monarchies and we're told that the now deceased Queen Jezebel of Israel had a daughter named Athaliah and she had married into the monarchy of Judah and Athaliah's son Achishah eventually became the king of Judah but then he was assassinated by Jehu who became king of Israel And all this was part of the Lord's demand upon Jehu to rid the land of the wicked dynasty of Ahab. However, Athaliah was a bit of a megalomaniac. And she had high ambitions. And so upon her son's death, she saw an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. And at first, um, as a Baal worshiper who inherently was anti yehovah she wanted to destroy the Lord's promise that a descendant of the house of David would rule Judah forever. And second, she wanted the throne of Judah for herself. However, since she wasn't of the tribe of Judah, she was not of the family of David and not a male, she was legally disqualified at every level. The single stone needed to solve all this was merely to kill every male descendant of King David and of King Ahav, the ruling dynasties of Judah and of Israel. And since family members of the two dynasties had intermarried, then doing one also accomplished the other. Thus Athaliah went on a homicidal spree and she killed every last male who might have had a legal right to the throne of Judah except she missed one. That one was a male infant but a few weeks old named Joash who was a descendant of King David. And his aunt, a loyalist of the Davidic dynasty and wife of the current high priest, Yehoyada, stole into the palace nursery, grabbed up this infant and his wet nurse, and took them into hiding. Now, Athalia seemed not to notice, and so the child was housed in the temple complex only yards from her own living quarters. Right under her nose, that boy lived there for over six years, with the families of the Levites and the priests. Apparently, no one aware of his true identity. Now, it's doubtful that Yoash had any idea that he was of royal blood. All during this time, Athaliah ruled over Judah and did all in her power to rid Judah of Jehovah worship and convert her kingdom to Baal worship. And this brings us back full circle as to why Jehoiada would actually believe it prudent to lead a full-scale rebellion against the erstwhile king of Judah with the intention of replacing her with a seven-year-old boy. I mean, the thought process was that a seven-year-old member of the Davidic dynasty who had been trained by Levites was a far better option as a legitimate king than an idol-worshipping daughter of Jezebel as an illegitimate queen. Well, the choice before Jehoiada was impossibly narrow, neither option being particularly attractive. But as goes the quote from that famous Indiana Jones movie, he chose wisely. Thus, as we grasp the circumstances, we begin to understand why Judah suddenly had a child king, when on the surface it seems in many ways to be so irrational and wrong. This is probably another good example of the rabbinic principle of Kal vomer, the principle of light and heavy. For those who might have forgotten this principle, it is that oftentimes... As worshippers of the God of Israel, we're going to find ourselves in situations whereby any choice we make is going to violate a God commandment or a God principle to some degree. Thus our task is to discern which of the not-so-good choices is the least bad. So we put these choices on God's balance scales, His holy word and use the most fundamental God principles that carry the greater weight as the deciding factor. In this case, the high priest determined it was better to have a child on the throne who was still more than five years away from being of the age of accountability, who had only the most limited understanding of his responsibilities, and who had utterly no way in his immature youth to personally make the countless weighty decisions that a king must make on a daily basis. I mean, could a seven-year-old lead a nation to war against an aggressor? This was one of the king's chief jobs in that era. Would having a seven-year-old as their king merely invite an invasion of a foreign power that saw this as an opportunity to expand their territory. See, this choice was viewed as more spiritually pragmatic than to leave Athaliah in place for several more years and then maybe wait for Joash to at least come to the age of Bar Mitzvah. So as we each face situations in our lives that appear to have no good answer, Let us remember how the high priest of Judah took courage for his bold choice and apply that principle of light versus heavy based upon the Lord's laws and commandments. This doesn't mean that what we're going to decide is going to be God's ideal. And as we study Joash's life, we'll discover that he turned out to be a mixed bag of good and evil promise and disappointment. But the harsh reality is that we're all fallen creatures living in a corrupted world and nothing operates as God ordained it. At least from the standpoint of heavenly ideals. Thus, rather than us remaining frozen, unable to make a decision, it's important for believers to know God's Torah which is our source of knowledge of his heavenly ideals and then learn which of these ideals carries more weight than another when a circumstance might bring them into conflict. That is what the totally dedicated and righteous High Priest of Israel, Yadah, did in crowning Joash. And in deposing and killing Queen Athalia, he was right and just in doing it. But at the same time, there were significant negative consequences. Let's read Second Kings chapter 12. Second Kings chapter 12. Joash was seven years old when he began his reign. It was in the seventh year of Yehu that Joash began to rule, and he ruled for 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zivya from Beersheba. Joash did what was right, from Adonai's perspective, throughout the lifetime of Yehoiada, the priest who instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and presented offerings on the high places. And Joash said to the priests, All the funds for sacred purposes which are brought to the house of Adonai, the half-shekel tax, the taxes on persons in a man's household, all the offerings anyone voluntarily brings to the house of Adonai, the Kohanim are to receive from whoever personally makes contributions to them. And they are to use these funds to repair the damaged parts of the house, wherever damage is found. But 23 years into the reign of King Joash, The priests had still not repaired the damaged places in the house. So King Joash summoned Jehoiada, the the high priest, and the other priests and said to them, Why aren't you repairing the damaged places in the house? Therefore you are no longer to take money from those who contribute it personally to you. You must hand it over to be used for repairing the damage in the house. And the Kohanim agreed not to receive money from the people and they would no longer be responsible for repairing the damage to the house. Then Jehoiada the Kohen took a chest and he drilled a hole in his lid and he set it by the altar on the right as one enters the house of Adonai and the priests in charge of the entry put in it all the money brought into the house of Adonai. And when they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the king's secretary and the high priest would come up, count the money found in the house of Adonai and put it into bags. They would give the weighed out money to those supervising the work in the house of Adonai, who would use it to pay for the carpenters and the construction workers doing the work in the house of Adonai. On masons, stone workers, timber, workstone, everything else needed for repairing the damaged places in the house of Adonai. But none of the money brought into the house of Adonai was used to make silver cups, uh, snuffers, bowls, trumpets or other articles of gold or silver for the house of Adonai because they gave the money to those doing the work thus restricting its use to repairing the damage in the house of Adonai. Moreover, they did not require an accounting <coughs> Excuse me, from the supervisors given the money to pay the workers because they dealt honestly. Money from guilt offerings and sin offerings, however, was not brought into the house of Adonai. It went to the Kohanim, the priests. Hazael, king of Aram, went up and fought against Goth, And after capturing it, Hazael made his decision to attack Jerusalem. Joash, king of Judah, took all the consecrated articles that Jehoshaphat, Yeoram and Akaz, ancestors, kings of Judah, had dedicated, as well as his own consecrated articles, all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of Adonai and of the royal palace, and he sent them to Hazael, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. Other activities of Joash and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Then his servants got together and formed a conspiracy and murdered Joash at Beit Milo on the way down to Silah. His servants, uh, Yozahachar, the son of Shemot, and Jehozavad, the son of Shomer, struck him so that he died. They buried him with his ancestors in the city of David and Amatia, took his son, took his place as king. Verses 1 and 2 use the, the biblical way of giving us the timing of what's being recorded. It uses the synchronization of the reigns of the kings of Judah and Israel. Thus it is repeated for us that Joash was but seven years old when he began his rule and that it happened when Yehu, king of Israel, was in his seventh year of ruling over Israel. Notice the coincidence of the sevens. The new king of Judah was seven years old. The king of Israel at that time had been king for seven years. So this leaves us no doubt about what happened here being of divine plan. Even if that divine plan was at least partly to bring about the Lord's punishment on both Israel and Judah. Now, we also find out that Joash's mother, she was one of Akashiah's wives, was a woman named Tziviah. Which translates as Roe, R O E. A roe is a kind of a small deer. <coughs> Excuse me. And it points out that she was from Beersheba. Now, that lies at the southernmost border region of Judah. So, while not conclusive, it almost certainly means she was of the tribe of Judah. And let me point out that while it is certainly a good thing that she was a Judahite, in this era, the familial association was according to the bloodlines of the father, not of the mother. So if Joash was to be counted as, a tribe, as part of the tribe of Judah, technically his father would have had to have been a Judahite, which he was. Then in verses 3 and 4 we get this interesting statement that I think is worth discussing. It says that on the one hand, Joash did what was right from God's perspective. But on the other hand, the high places that were left intact and the people of Judah who favored them still sacrificed and worshipped at those private altars. And King Joash sanctioned it. Now, what we see in verse 3, however, is that the things that Joash did right occurred at the time when the high priest Yada was still living with the implication that Joash made a turn towards the bad when the high priest's influence ended upon his death. There is a deep spiritual lesson for us to learn from this chapter that revolves around the life of Joash. If we have the ears to hear it, It is a spiritually fatal mistake in any religious revival or movement to merely abolish or to denounce or to destroy the errors of our thinking and of our false practices of the past without at the same time affirming and observing what is right, what is true, what is holy. Nature abhors a vacuum that something is going to fill up that space and that purpose of that thing that's been removed or abolished. Especially for Christians, when it comes to our faith doctrines, if we negate or we abandon what the Holy Spirit has clearly revealed through God's Word as being false, having no merit in our lives without at the same time replacing it with what is biblically right and pure, then we've really achieved very little. And as we've seen in the past couple of chapters, King Jehu, for instance, did exactly as God commanded him to do, and he destroyed Baal worship in the northern kingdom. On the other hand, in order to replace the Baal worship was something else, he didn't lead the people back to the Torah, which would have been the right thing to do. Rather, he led them into the same golden calf culture that Jeroboam had instituted. It is true that the golden calf cult taught that these calf images were actually images of Jehovah. But to make graven images of Jehovah is specifically prohibited in the Ten Commandments and to do it by using the Egyptian religion's calf god image makes it all the more terrible. And this is the case no matter if some good intent were involved in there somewhere. Thus we now read that while Joash honored the temple And the Levitical priesthood on the one hand. On the other hand, he allowed the people to do something that was specifically forbidden in the Torah, to sacrifice at places other than the temple in Jerusalem. What's so bad about that? If at least it was God who was being honored. Even beyond breaking a specific commandment, these high places, these bamot, were essentially private family altars. Individual families performed sacrifices without the required officiating of the the Levitical priesthood and instead they also did it in ways that seemed good to them. And as with the golden calves, the God that was theoretically being honored at these high places was Jehovah, God of Israel. These weren't altars to Baal that were being that we're talking about here, these high places. But in reality, the sacrifices upon those private altars weren't accepted by the Lord because this practice was an affront to His holiness. You know, that means that it's insufficient for us to merely replace one bad doctrine with a dubious new one. God may well commend us for turning away from something that's aberrant to Him, but have have we actually done good when we only turn around and we adopt another doctrine or observance in its place, even if it's fun and joyful and meaningful for us, that is not truth. It's not light. Even if it's not quite as wicked and wrong as that which we practiced before. See, in the end, we're only deceiving ourselves. We're just tempting God to act against us. Well, at this time, I'd like for us to turn to a parallel account of what We've been reading in Second Kings 12. Now there's a lot more detail here. About Jehoiada and the actions of Joash and his subsequent assassination, and I think now would be the best time for us to go ahead and, and look at this and incorporate the information. So, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 24. Now, some of this, admittedly, is redundant, but there's a lot of new and pertinent information here. Okay, Second Chronicles chapter 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1206. Second Chronicles chapter 24. A parallel account. Yoash was seven years old when he began his reign and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zephya from Beersheba and Yoash did what was right from Adonai's perspective throughout the lifetime of Jehoiada the Kohen. Jehoiada chose two wives for him and he became the father of some sons and daughters. And sometime later, Joash decided to restore the house of Adonai, and he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and collect money each year from all Israel to repair the house of your God. See that you do this promptly. But when the Levites procrastinated, the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why haven't you demanded that the Levites bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax prescribed by Moses, the servant of Adonai, and by the community of Israel for the tent of the testimony? For the sons of that wicked Athaliah have broken up the house of God, and they have given all the consecrated things belonging to the house of Adonai, to the Baals. Then at the king's order they made a box and they placed it outside the entrance to the house of Adonai and they proclaimed throughout Judah and Yerushalayim that the tax Moshe the servant of God had imposed on Israel in the desert should be brought in for Adonai. And all the leaders and all the people were glad to bring in their contributions and put them in a box until it was full. And when the box was brought to the king's officials by the, Leviim, the Levites and when they saw how much money... There was the king's secretary and the chief Cohen's officials came and emptied the box. And then they took it and returned it to its place. And they did this daily. And they collected money in abundance. The king and Jehoiada gave it to those in charge of taking care of the house of Adonai. They, in turn, hired stone workers and carpenters to restore the house of Adonai. Also iron and bronze workers to repair the house of Adonai. The workers got on with their tasks so that the restoration progressed well until they had returned the house of God to its earlier condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money to the king and Jehoiada and it was used to make equipment for the house of Adonai. Articles for ministry, buckets, firepans, utensils of gold and silver. So they offered burnt offerings in the house of Adonai regularly throughout the time of Jehoiada. But Jehoiada grew old. And when he was full of days, he died. He was 130 years old when he died. They buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had served Israel, God, and his house well. And after Jehoiada died, the leaders of Judah came and they prostrated themselves before the king. And then the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of Adonai, the god of their ancestors, and served the sacred poles and idols. And in consequence of their guilt, God's anger fell on Judah and Jerusalem. And despite of this, he sent them prophets to bring them back to Adonai. And they warned them, but they wouldn't pay attention. The Spirit of God covered Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the Cohen, and he stood above the people and addressed them. Thus says God, why are you transgressing the commandments of Adonai and courting disaster? because you have abandoned Adonai. He's abandoned you. But they conspired against him and stoned him to death at the order of the king in the courtyard of the house of Adonai. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had done for him, but put his son to death. And as he was dying, he said, May Adonai see this and take vengeance. The following spring the army of Aram came up against him. They attacked Judah and Jerusalem, slaughtered all the people's leaders, sent all the spoils to the king of Damascus. And although the army of Aram attacked with only a small company of men, Adonai handed over a very great army to them because they had abandoned Adonai, the god of their ancestors. Thus they executed judgment against Joash. And after they had left him, and they left him seriously wounded, his own servants conspired against him, because he had shed the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the Cohen, and they killed him in his own bed. And after he died, they buried him in the city of David, but they didn't bury him in the tombs of the kings. Those who conspired against him were Zavad, the son of Schmat, at the Omanuit, and Yehoshavad, the son of Shimrit the Moavit. As for his sons, the heavy tribute imposed on him and the rebuilding of the house of God, they are recorded in the commentary of the annals of the kings. Then Amatzio, his son, took his place as king. We're going to weave some of these details into what we're studying in Second Kings 12 as we go along. Now what we need to notice, and it's obvious, that a seven-year-old was not actually making decisions of state. He wasn't judging civil and criminal matters, nor was he actually running the kingdom. Rather, Yoash was a figurehead as he obtained on-the-job training so to speak Jehoiada was the real power behind the throne and I'm sure it was no secret even to the common citizens but since he was the high priest and he acted in a righteous manner the people seemed to have no problem with this arrangement they trusted him now we found out in second chronicles that Jehoiada lived to be 130 years old that's a rare rare occurrence in those days thus he was over 100 years old when he led that coup against Athaliah and installed Joash as king. So as verse 3 of 2 Kings 12 explains, as long as Jehoiada lived, he had the perceived authority and power and the support of the people to guide young King Joash to make decisions that were in accordance with God's will. And they were also for the benefit of the people of Judah. However, the high priest was also clearly an astute politician as his strategy for developing support for the overthrow of Athaliah demonstrated. And so it must have seemed just a pragmatic decision not to rile up the more powerful clan leaders by insisting that they abandoned their high places that were so important to them because they were status symbols for them. Jehoiada was a godly man, but he wasn't a perfect man. And in reality, it was Jehoiada who allowed the BAMOT, the high places, to continue to exist. Now verse 5 explains the temple was in great disrepair if not dilapidation. And Joash, as he grew older, noticed this. And he felt that this shouldn't have happened. And considering Jehoiada's advanced age, the high priest probably didn't have very much energy to spearhead this effort to make all the repairs. Well, the temple itself was now about 150 years old. And although made largely of stone, there was a lot of timber and and fabrics used and they were bound to need replacing. But 2 Chronicles 24 also reveals that Athaliah had directed her sons to literally scavenge the temple for building materials to take and use for her temple to Baal. So the temple treasury might have been able to make repairs, but she had looted the funds. Therefore, King Josiah would now jump in and he would use his position to force the issue. Now, verse 5 tells us something fascinating. It tells us the sources for the funding for operating the temple and the priesthood, and there are three named categories of this funding. First, it was from those who Pass through, second, money from what's called personal evaluation, and third, voluntary contributions given from the heart. Let's address each of these in turn. Those who pass through means the annual half shekel tax that was expected of all Israelites as a communal offering to the temple. The, com- the complete Jewish Bible uses what's called a dynamic translation and so it actually says half shekel tax. This is a direct Torah commandment to do this. Is found in Exodus 30. Exodus 30.13 says everyone subject to the census is to pay as an offering to Adonai half a shekel by the standard of the sanctuary shekel. Now, money for personal evaluation. Again, the the complete Jewish Bible uses a dynamic instead of a literal translation and says taxes on on persons in a man's household. This is referring to a table of values that was set up in Leviticus 27. And this provides a standard for people to vow money to the temple then this table is set up based on gender, age and a couple of other factors let's go to that Um, Leviticus 27 verses 1 through 8 Leviticus 27 verses 1 through 8 says this Adonai said to Moshe tell the people of Israel If someone makes a clearly defined vow to Adonai to give him an amount equal to the value of a human being and the value you are to assign to a man between the ages of 20 and 60 years is to be 50 shekels of silver with the sanctuary shekel being the standard. If it's a woman... 30 shekels. If it's a child, 5 to 20 years old, assign a value of 20 shekels for a boy, 10 for a girl. If it's a baby, 1 month to 5 years of age, 5 shekels for a boy, 3 for a girl. If a person is past 60, 15 shekels for a man, 10 for a woman. If a person's too poor to be evaluated, set him before the priest who will assign him a value in keeping with the means of the person who made the vow. So, one could argue if the use that the priesthood was now making of this passage in Leviticus by collecting money in this manner was what was, a, was what God originally intended or not, we can argue again about that. But the point is, whether it was or it wasn't, this indeed is what they were doing. And the rationale of Leviticus 27 is what they were basing it upon. The third source of funding for the temple is what is called money that comes from a man's heart. And the complete Jewish Bible calls them voluntary offerings. Now, this is money of no set amount that a person can donate whenever they feel led to do so. Now, King Yoash ordered that all the money from these three sources was to be used only for repairs to the temple. But in his 23rd year of reigning, when he was only 30 years old, the temple still wasn't being repaired and he ran out of patience. In verse 5 in Second Chronicles 24 says that King Josiah had even ordered the priests and the Levites to go out among the people of Judah to travel and to solicit funds for rebuilding, but this was to no avail. No progress was being made. And in verse 8 the king institutes a new system to get the temple repaired. He calls in Jehoiada and the lesser priests and he dresses them down for ignoring his decree. And he tells them that from here on out, he's taken charge of this. And the king suspected that the priests were simply collecting the money and keeping it for themselves. They would no longer get to receive these funds then, or to disperse them. Rather, a wooden chest with a hole in the top was fashioned and it was placed in the sanctuary area and as the priests who were stationed all around the temple courtyard collected money from the people as they came, they were to bring all that money at the end of the day to this chest and deposit it all in there. And once it looked pretty full, the king's accountants together with the high priest would take it, they'd bag the money then they turn it all over to the work crews who had been hired to repair the temple. Now let's be clear, this was not coins that they were collecting. It was silver and gold. Until we begin to approach the Greek and Roman times, coins were not used by the Hebrews. So the gold and the silver then would get separated into appropriate bags, weighed, and the king's accountants no doubt would record the amount of money, and then they would turn it over to the king's overseers whose sole task it was to make temple repairs. Well, verse 14 is kind of a parenthesis that explains that repairing the temple shouldn't include such things as making new gold and silver furnishings for the temple. The money was for structural repairs, not lots of expensive ornaments and ritual vessels. And this can only mean that the priests must have preferred having expensive gold and silver doodads to show off instead of dealing with the more mundane matters of maintenance of the temple structure. That said, 2 Chronicles 24 tells us that there were silver vessels made from some of these funds. The sages explained this by saying that while temple repairs were the priority, some of the leftover funds could be used for this purpose. However, even though the king had an accounting of how much money was taken in, the men who were put in charge of the repairs were so trusted that they didn't have to make an accounting of how they spent the money that was given to them. All that said, the priest still needed some money to live on So there was an arrangement where they could keep some of the money collected for certain kinds of offerings and sacrifices. And although it's kind of obscured by our English text, the kinds were the asham and the hata'at offerings. They could keep that money for themselves. Well, verse 18 now suddenly shifts. It explains how the last part of Joash's reign came to a very bloody close. And it seems that Hazael, king of Aram, king of Syria, once again turned his sights upon Israel and Judah as a means to expand either expand his territory or increase his treasury or both. And it must be noted, by the way, that very few foreign armies invaded another nation for the purpose of conquering the territory and adding it to their kingdom more usual was to conquer the people, making them a vassal state and then allowing them to be governed by their own king with the understanding that a set amount of tribute would be paid regularly. The amounts were invariably huge and they tended to economically devastate the conquered nation of course while enriching the victor. Now Hazael invaded from the north and he marched down the Mediterranean sea coast to Gath. Now Gath was at one time a Philistine city, one of those five Philistine pentapolis cities. But almost 200 years earlier, David had conquered it, and it remained under the control of Judah until Hazael took it. Once he had subdued those areas, he now set his sights on Judah's capital city, Yerushalayim. Well, Yehoiada was dead, and Joash was now on his own. His flawed character immediately surfaced. And when news came to him that the army of Aram was on its way to his capital, he immediately turned to appeasement instead of beseeching the God of Israel for help. Instead of praying and sacrificing at the temple, he looted it. He took every gold and silver item, every sacred object and furnishing, and he sent it all to Hazael in order to buy him off. Jehovah's temple was decimated by the king of Judah, but he got to keep his job. <laughs> got to keep his sovereignty. And apparently that's all that mattered to him. Politicians don't seem to have changed very much over the centuries. In the end, it was usually about themselves. It was usually about personal agendas. This is why the Bible goes out of its way to congratulate the very few kings of Israel and Judah who at times seemed to put politics momentarily aside and actually do what was right for the nation and for the people. Well, interestingly, 2 Kings 12 left out some important points that are recorded in 2 uh, 2 Chronicles 24 starting at verse 17. And it seems that upon the high priest's death, Many leaders in Judah came to Joash, fell down at his feet, and they begged him to abandon Solomon's temple and the worship of Jehovah in favor of rebuilding Baal's temple and worshiping him. Joash agreed to it. But the Lord God, in his mercy, sent prophets to warn the people that they were headed for sure disaster... By their decision to change gods, and Zechariah, son of the deceased high priest Jehoiada, stood before the people and he chastised them and he warned them what they were in for. And he was killed for his efforts. In fact, the passages make it clear that Joash was personally involved in having Zechariah executed, and this is what led. God to open the floodgates of punishment upon Judah. Up to now, Aram had been Israel's problem. No more. Now Hazael marched upon Jerusalem due to Judah's idolatry. Verse 21 of 2 Kings 12 says that Joash's servants, meaning his own royal court, turned on him and assassinated him. And the reasons because he had led Judah into ruin. He had personally led the people into Baal worship, personally looted the temple to avoid a fight with Aram, and personally executed God's prophet, Zechariah. Now although he was buried in the city of David, Second Chronicles explains he was denied the honor of being buried in the tombs of Judah's kings, his son Amaziah horse he's called in second chronicles mazziah took over the throne of judah we're going to read his story in second kings 13 next time